Welcome to Notes from the Field, brought to you by Noeo Science. How you doing, Will? Doing better than I deserve. <laughs> How are you? Very good. Almost Thanksgiving. It's almost Thanksgiving. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful time of year. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, we have a lot to be thankful for. We do. Yeah. We have a, a rich, a rich natural heritage given to us by God. That's, and, and yeah, and U.S., we've learned a lot of lessons from our mistakes. But yeah. We've, because of our wealth, we now can put more energy into uh, taking care of our natural uh, resources, our natural heritage. And we've learned a lot. Uh, Absolutely. So things are a lot better than they were back when I was a kid. Yeah, just kind of the state of affairs ecologically. Yeah. Yeah. Truth, you know, and, you know, maybe a topic for another time, but interesting how, you know, this, we have, we have a greater and maybe a more widespread skin deep knowledge of ecology per capita, mm-hmm. per person, uh, even while we've seen a, a decrease kind of on the individual's engagement level in, in that creation. Kind of that whole last child in the woods syndrome. Yeah, we want to talk really about that wanna, another time. Yeah, yeah. Well, something we're uh, actively working uh, against here. Yeah, we want we want our young uh, Christians to be the most engaged. Yeah. Uh, in creation and have yeah. and have this increasing working knowledge, uh, and I would say hopefully increasing kind of like the two hemispheres of of the cerebrum. The two the natural uh, natural general revelation and special revelation. Mm-hmm. We we want our young uh, cr- Christians to have the strongest working knowledge of both, yeah. and hopefully the most intersections right. between the two. Not just uh, not just book knowledge. A lot of kids uh, consume a lot of books, and yeah. especially kids that love nature, but they're they're in the books too much and not seeing the real thing. Yeah. Although we are skirting around our. Yeah, we're just we're, we're just getting we're just warmed warming up. up. We're just getting warmed <laughs> up. But um, I have I have a uh, I have a greater tolerance for the skirting. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's get down. To let's it. get to the nuts and bolts here. Right. We're talking about talking about biogeography today. I was really yeah. thrilled when you suggested that topic. Yeah. Just because there's so much, just that phrase is just kind of a rich one. Yeah, it's a rich one. It's a very very. It can be a very complex topic. You know, there's textbooks written on it. But first, before we get too deep, let's just have a sort of basic working definition of biogeography. Yeah, just just general distribution yeah. of plants and animals yeah. or organisms throughout the world. Yeah. So what lives in each place and why? Yeah. Uh, okay. I like that. Um, you know, we when you drive south, I, I knew we were getting to the deep south when we were leaving Virginia. When I started to see that the roadkill was different. <laughs> That's what caught your eye. That's so yeah, funny. Yeah, it was interesting because it went from possum to armadillo. Yeah. Roadkill. Yeah. And it was just an interesting, okay, I'm now in a different, you know, an ecosystem. There's some overlap. I think but they I'm call that the different... possum marsupial or the, uh, the marsupial placental mammal roadkill line. You know, that's- Well, a... it wasn't, uh, that's both are placental. Oh, uh, so, sorry, sorry. That is a Mars. Sorry, yeah, the, the possum. The possum. Was, was, yeah, it's a f- but fa- I was a f- just. <laughs> but one's more adapted to the southern climes. No, 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 no. I, I love it, and you know that's an interesting place. Uh, I've noticed two other things, and I'll just I'm skirting again, so forgive me. But um, 
And two things that I always notice when I drive south from Virginia is that the water, all of a sudden you get to black water country. Right. The water turns black. Right. And you also start seeing uh, more epiphytes, including uh, Spanish right. moss. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But hanging keep, off the trees. Keep going with your original point. Oh, yeah. But so, you know, what lives where and why, uh, basically, you see this distribution, you know, that uh, marsupials are in Australia and you've got you certain... A uh, suite of African animals that you know live in eastern the the savannas, eastern Africa being yeah. sort of the quintessential spot. Yep. For giraffes and lions and elephants and rhinos, and you've got a certain a certain group of fauna uh, in North America. And from a creationist standpoint, the reason I brought it up is to just discuss it in light of uh, creation. Why you know. If everything, all land animals came off of the ark yeah. in the mountains of Adarat, how did they get to where they are now? Yeah. And why, why this very big differences? You know, obviously there's a climatic differences in different continents, but some things could live somewhere else, possibly, mm -hmm. uh, but they, they, for whatever reason, don't. Uh, not because they couldn't live there. Uh, they might be adapted to the colds and the seasons, but for whatever reason, some historical contingency did not put their ancestors there. Right. And so we wanted to talk about this. And I wanted to also just point out that this, this topic, because we're going back to unobserved well, maybe it was observed, but it wasn't recorded. Mm -hmm. We've got sort of the broad brushstrokes of the Bible, and we've got uh, the distribution, the current distribution of plants and animals across the globe. Right. And we can speculate, and I want to make, you know, underline that word, speculate. These are speculations, you know, possible scenarios of how things got to where they are now. Yeah. And uh, some possible explanations from a Young Earth biogeographical -ge model. Yeah. And again, keep these, these ideas in an open hand. They may be compatible with scripture. They may be compatible with the current distribution of plants and animals, and they may be completely wrong. Exactly. <laughs> and and that's, that's, that's one of these, uh, you know, limitations of, of what we call right. historic Historical, Historical forensic science. science. Yeah. It's a very You're, different type of animal. And, right. and the secular community rejects that distinction right. between, uh, uh, between operational and forensic science. Yeah. Um, but, so empirical but, science, we call uh, observational science yep. or operational science. You, you can test, you can repeat, you can see, you, you, can, know, you can do experiments. Uh, and we can actually do empirical science with biogeography biogeography as far as what's living there now yeah. and what enables them to be adapted to that ecosystem or climate. But when you're trying to reconstruct the past when it's not been recorded, you're really, really on uh, skinny branches or thin, thin ice. But with that said, we can, we can talk about some of the different processes or mechanisms that could have uh, resulted in these patterns. Right. And, and still a worthwhile endeavor. Yeah. You know, and we still have clues. The Lord has, the Lord has concealed much for us to try to investigate and figure right. out. And some of those things are concealed in the past mm -hmm. and concealed in fossil layers, et cetera. Right. Yeah. Right. The other warning is that 
lay the lay community, both the evolutionist uh, lay community as well as the creationist community, they want solid answers. And uh, there's nothing wrong with wanting uh, answers. And if they are clear answers given in scripture or clear answers given in science, then great. But we also have to be patient. We, we can't demand solid, certain answers when we can't give them. Yeah. Especially with historical sciences. And too often, scientists who are experts, regardless of creationists or evolutionists, it's very tempting, especially when the lay community really wants certainty, to get out over their skis and actually start giving certainty when nothing is certain. Right. And that is just a dangerous, dangerous thing. And, so, and we have a lot of good teachers around us that give good examples, even though they might not be scientists. It's really important to notice when someone is qualifying something. Yeah. When you read it, when, and the newspaper articles and the popular press is really bad about this. They tend to take a scientific article, remove all the qualifiers, and then print it in big, bold uh, right. font right. that says that it's absolutely conclusive. Yeah. And um, the qualifiers are hugely important. They sure are. Yeah. They sure are. So here we go. Uh, you know, the, what, what's uh, amazing about some of the patterns in biogeography is that you've got very similar, sometimes very similar species, not just... Uh, what evolutionists call convergent evolution, like the Tasmanian wolf and the uh, and the the mar the placental wolf, right? Where you have very sim uh, very big uh, overall similarities, right? But very fundamental differences, mm -hmm. like one's marsupial and one's placental, right? But we're talking about actually really similar species in the same genus, maybe in the same species that are on opposite continents, separated by thousands of miles, um, you know. And from an evolutionary perspective, uh, when you're talking about how, and, and these aren't, their distribution is not necessarily attributed to man moving it there. Right. You have a, a very similar bison in the Central Asia as to our bison. They look a little bit different. They're a different species, but they're in the same genus. And okay, these are very, very similar. Right. And um, from, a, from an evolutionary time scale, these continents were not connected anytime in the, in the uh, very recent past. Right. They were, they were separated by often multiple millions, if not tens of millions of years. And yet they are very, very similar. And this is a conundrum, a big conundrum, and it's a big head scratcher. Of course, they can come up with their ad hoc explanations, but uh, it's a bigger conundrum to, to them than to us when we think that the distribution happened in the relatively recent past. But anyway, I don't know if you've, I know that one thing as a herpetologist, I've noticed that some, like the toad genus, Bufo, You've got some toads in Europe. You've got toads in America. They used to be in the same genus. And I, I'm just particularly interested in why they changed it. They have most of the old world, the old world toads they kept in Bufo, the genus Bufo, and now the new world toads are in a different genus. Oh, interesting. But the, that's pretty recent. Very, yeah, that's a very recent. Well, I'm not sure when that taxonomic change took place, but 
the New World toads are now Anaxorus. Oh, wow. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right because it's a new one. I haven't heard a lot of herpetologists say it. But, you know, then also the Old World typical true frogs, Rana, uh, the typical frogs that you see hopping into water around ponds, that's in the genus Rana, the bullfrog. Well, leopard frog. Yeah, the leopard frog. But now the, the New World Rana have been changed to lithobates. Oh, my. And what's interesting is I'm wondering if that is just due to genetic differences or uh, if they've just, they've got to be different because they've been separated by X number of millions of years. Yeah. I'm sure there's some genetic differences that has warranted that. But there's another frog in North America, the Columbia spotted frog right here. Yep. That they kept. They didn't change they kept to it lithobates. Yeah, they kept it as Rana. Right. Uh, it's still all of them are Ranidae, the right. family, but they kept as Rana along with the European Rana. But then everybody else around here uh, in North America is Lithobates. So it's just interesting if the continents were separated for that long, it just doesn't make sense when you've got toads, whether they are in the same genus or not, they are very, very similar yeah. toads, frogs. So it kind of brings up, and this, it's the same with plants too. Um, yeah, it brings up this idea of species and speciation. Yeah. And so, just kind of zooming out, just make sure I'm following you. Uh, we look at we look at worldwide distribution of animals and plants, and we see very similar species on completely different continents, separated by oceans, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you were to conduct an experiment where you where you brought all these species together in a lab, and which has been done to, for some of these. Some of these actually could breed and yeah. produce fertile offspring. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so that that suggests an incredible similarity, mm-hmm. and that that is a really hard pill to swallow it's if you're really an evolutionist, yeah, because sure. usually species that can interbreed, uh, evolutionists would say that they diverged from each other relatively recently. Yeah, like in the last two. Usually, they say last time I heard was about two million years. They have to be separated to be pretty solid species. Yeah. But we've got, we've got critters that can interbreed that have been separated by oceans that have been supposedly separated by much longer periods of time. And so um, this idea of co-convergent uh, uh, evolution of, yeah. of creatures uh, actually ending up similar to one another, even though separated by thousands of miles the number of times that type of convergent evolution would have had to occur across different taxa, yeah, that is a tough one. But the thing is, and usually when they're similar, they don't think it's it's convergent. They just think, okay, uh, they've just stayed similar, but it just doesn't make sense. You would expect them to be much more divergent. Yeah. So- that's a big problem for them. Um, but some someone might say, well, how did they actually disperse? I mean, these continents are separated. We obviously, how'd they get from where they are now to where they were coming off when they were disembarking from the ark? Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, some of the obvious ones are migration, where they just moved, naturally moved, and spread out over this unpopulated earth. It was pretty much just. Um, a clean slate. Uh, plants were growing up all over because the plants were able to survive outside the ark. And so you have this migration of all 
all sorts of animal species come all kinds coming off. Uh, so migration, uh, you say, but how do they get across the oceans? Um, some, some of the, some of the, this is just very broad brush, but the creationists, um, a very popular creationist model is called catastrophic plate tectonics, where the continents did were connected and broke up similar to the evolutionary model, except at a much faster rate. Right. So these continents broke up during the flood, the, as, the, as the theory goes, under the floodwaters. And so after the flood abated, you have these continents spread apart, but you also have huge mats of uh, vegetation that have been ripped up. Now, many of them had been ripped up and buried in sediment and other mats of floating vegetation. This idea of plants after the, or I'm sorry, plants for sure can be carried in mats because right. they, they're made up mostly of plants, many seeds, but also uh, animals that got ripped off, uh, say, waters during a, a torrential spring flood ripped off chunks of vegetation and, uh, and carried all sorts of um, stowaways on these chunks of vegetation, not voluntary, but right. they just happened to be on these rafts of vegetation uprooted from their normal home and sent out to sea to follow these ocean currents where they hit landfall somewhere else across the ocean, um, circulating who knows where. Yeah. And these big ocean currents can take these rafts all over the place. And there's good, there's good, there's empirical, good, yeah, good modern, empirical, we, we see these mats now. Yeah. You know, they're, uh, you know, one of the most well-known ones that's kind of stuck in its place is the, is the Sargasso, the Sargassum in the Sargasso Sea, which is in the North Atlantic. And because of the, the different ocean gyres there, it kind of stays in its, in its place, uh, east and north of the Caribbean. Uh, but then there are, there are also, uh, there are also these mats that exist in, in uh, other parts of the world as well. And yeah. they can be observed and, and they actually are a, a sort of an, a traveling ecosystem. Yeah, a traveling ecosystem. Some get ripped up whole to where palm trees have been uh, in these big mats of vegetation and various plants that are still growing, still green, not dead. Amazing. And they're out at sea, you know, um, out of land site, you know. And they're just floating, following the ocean currents. So if various uh, animals are on those things, living, actually able to survive uh, because there's enough above ocean um, mass Mm -hmm. to to keep them from being waterlogged or drowned, they can reach landfall somewhere and clamber clamber onto a different continent or a different island. Yeah, Um, after the tsunami in Japan in 2011, we saw a massive a massive acreage of floating mm-hmm. mat material yeah. that uh, that left the continent of Asia mm-hmm. and headed out into the Pacific. I'm not sure where, I'm not sure if we yeah. know where it ended up, but we've also seen this from some kind of funny human accidents, like the overturning of that c- container of the rubber container duckies. rubber duckies and those rubber duckies, <laughs> um, 19, we, 1992, and they were <laughs> those r- little rubber ducks that came out of the container on a container ship were found all over, rubber duckies were picked up all over the world from that one lost container. So kind of a, kind of a fun experimental model of sorts. Yeah. Yeah. The, the other thing is they, uh, 
land bridges, things that uh, where there was connections between continents because of after the flood during the Ice Age, where there was a, a lot of uh, snow buildup, ice sheet buildup, lowering the sea levels and where continents were connected. The Bering uh, Strait was connected. All, all sorts of connections that may have happened uh, that made uh, migration intercontinental, transcontinental migration yeah. possible. Yep. Again, a lot of this hangs on certain assumptions about the past that we can't always prove, but these right. are just ideas to throw out there. Migration, transcontinental migration by uh, bridges, natural bridges. Also, what you mentioned before, speciation, where you have these created kinds that have a lot of genetic potential and then speciate uh, once they arrive at their, their new continent, there's this whole selection of different ecosystems where these animals radiate out and then speciate, all, all having the same ancestor with the same basic genetic information, but adaptation has occurred and you've got enough differences within uh, each species, but essentially very similar. Yeah. So, so Galapagos finches being a classic example, yeah, the uh, mollusks or snails in Hawaii. Uh, yeah, the, the, the honey creepers in Hawaii, some of the drosophila, which are the fruit flies in Hawaii, yeah. where you have a lot of speciation happening. Again, you have to get detailed into how much speciation can actually occur. Uh, I'm not saying that one generic marsupial landed on Australia, which gave rise to Tasmanian wolves and Tasmanian devils and kangaroos and wombats and koalas. Yeah. yeah. You know, I don't think that- Those are probably different kinds. Yeah. But, <laughs> but where you draw the line between different kinds is something that's highly, highly debated within yeah. the creationist community. And so we have to be even very careful and open-handed on that. But these are just some ideas to throw out there. But again, don't get dogmatic, whether you're a layperson or for those creation scientists who uh, know a lot about these topics, maybe even a lot more than I do, be careful that your expertise doesn't get you too dogmatic. Yeah, no, that's a good, you know, uh, endemism is one of the most interesting topics to me. Uh, one of the joys of of our planet is 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 this weird distribution of creatures. And there are certain parts of the world where we tend to have species that are found nowhere else. So there are these areas of endemism and mm -hmm. endemic species being one that's native to an area not found anywhere else. Right. Um, and so places like the east, east coast of Madagascar or just kind of Indonesia uh, as a whole or the island of Australia or New Zealand, uh, these creatures that tend to be found in one general location and nowhere else, uh, they, they present interesting, I guess, an Head intellectual scratchers. challenge. Yeah. For trying to figure out how, how did they end up here and, yeah, and how why are they not nowhere found? else? Yeah. You know, how come we don't have kangaroos? Well, we do have some kangaroos in New Guinea, but. Right. Or wallabies. But, you know, how did they, you know, how come there's no sign of them elsewhere? What's interesting is that after the flood, when you've got things migrating and they live there for a while, they don't necessarily fossilize. So there may not be any fossil record of them being in that area hmm. during their 
over the decades moving across Asia or wherever, whatever route they took to get where they are now, there, there doesn't have to be any record. I'm trying to think of, there's not really a fossil record, as I recall reading, of certain things that they're, they're there now, but they don't have a fossil record. Mm, okay. So, but I have to double check on, on that. Yeah. So it's possible that kangaroos and various marsupials migrated across uh, the continent, not leaving, and then they got either pushed out, outcompeted by the placental mammals, and then just moved on to Australia. But usually the evolutionist story or narrative is that, well, the, the marsupials arrived uh, in Australia and then, then they, they diversified there. Right. But now there's recent findings that placentals were there way, you know, according to their time scale, 120 million years ago. So, so then they have to explain they have to why explain the placentals did not, did not were not yeah. successful. So really, it That's takes a lot of a lot of assumptions on right. both on both parties. We can construct our own theories and models, but uh, again, it'll be very very satisfying. Those of us who really want answers, and we all do. Yeah, we just can't be so hungry for them that we start making up answers and then accepting them as gospel. Right. But we will find out one day, you know, how did all of this distribution happen? Whether the other thing that I think we sort of underestimate is man's ability to get animals and plants where they are now. Now, in an evolutionary model, they have to factor man out of right. most of the history of biogeography right. because uh, paleobiogeography biogeography because man wasn't around building ships. But from our perspective, after Babel, you know, we do the we do know that man was not some troglodyte that was incompetent. There was a lot of smarts in that early man post-Babel, where there was a distribution, the languages were confused, the people all the different language groups scattered across the world. Right. And we know that the Phoenicians were uh, plying the oceans really early. Yeah. They were getting all over the place. Um, you know, we know that even Solomon was going to Ophir, um, the gold of Ophir. Well, could have been even the New World. Right. I mean, the, the Phoenicians may have gone all over the place. They probably had a naturalist aboard who collected specimens. and Yeah, or, or just like <laughs> maybe taking animals for food, but right? maybe not just for food. Uh, maybe they knew that, hey, this is post-flood. We need to, we need to take uh, animals aboard, uh, not even things that aren't utilitarian. Yeah. Uh, maybe use them for food if we get lost at sea and <laughs> we, we're not... Uh, making landfall anytime soon. Yeah. But, um, you know, bringing animals around the world, once you factor man's ingenuity into the equation, it can also explain a lot of things that are sort of head scratchers to both the evolutionist and to the creationist. Like, how did it get there? And why aren't well, and uh, then there's the so. unwitting uh, transportation, yeah. you know, invasive of, of, species, right? Barnacles, yeah. barnacles in in the ballast kind of uh, mm -hmm. scenario where all kinds of little 
invertebrate sea creatures are going to be attached to the bottom of that hole yeah. and are, are going to get transported who knows where. Yeah. That's interesting. I have a, a one or two questions. One question I have, and one of the great um, sources out there, kind of seminal works is, is um, Whitcomb and Morris's The Genesis Flood. And that's kind of a great place to start if you're interested in, of course, the flood account in Genesis is a great place to start. And, but uh, the Genesis flood was kind of the big first monumental effort on, the, on behalf of creationists in the modern era to, to piece together uh, scripture uh, and what we see as evidence uh, for a global flood. Mm-hmm. And they do a phenomenal job. They don't get everything right, and they put forward some model ideas, but it's an interesting place to start. And so one of the questions I had for you, uh, Gordon, you mentioned that this, this idea of plate tectonics, which most folks tend to agree it's a theory still. We, yeah. we can't confirm it, but there's a ton of supportive evidence for this idea of continental drift by way of plate tectonics. A lot of that coming from Alfred Wegener in the early 1900s and then supported later uh, with, with the discovery of these plates. When, when the flood event occurred and the, and the plates uh, started to, uh, move, started to yeah. move apart from each other in the creationist model, was it, is it, is the current thought that that process ended before the floodwater subsided or did it continue after? Yeah, it would, it would be slowing down. So during the flood, you know, based on the modeling, the computer modeling, these continents were moving at meters per second. Yeah. Okay. At its full, not, not full centimeters bowl. per, per or, year or, or less. Or less. Yeah. They were really moving, but then, then they, collided subcontinent of of India collided with Asia and rose the Himalayas and various other collisions and then everything starts to decelerate and so right now we're in the extreme deceleration where it's still moving but at that what they would say uniformitarian rate of whatever millimeters per year or less so yeah yeah no that's so good that's helpful I, I don't know exactly where it's to stop getting what we would call pretty fast. Yeah. Um, from, yeah <laughs> meters per second is pretty fast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, um, and the term continental sprint is kind of what yeah, a lot of creationists will say instead drift, of continental drift, right. which is a helpful. And, and if you want to read more up on, uh, you know, all, a lot of these topics converge. Uh, you got, we talk about biogeography, but then what is called catastrophic plate tectonics or CPT for short, if you want to go to various creationist websites like uh, Creation Ministries International or Answers in Genesis. You can type in catastrophic plate tectonics or CPT and read up on that. And maybe even, you know, think through, you know, biogeography is pretty complex because there's, there's many thousands of species and they've got their distributions. And, you know, it's sort of hard. We, we, we sometimes assume, oh, it's there because man put it there. Uh, some say, no, man didn't put it there. It was there all along, but from an evolutionary perspective. But maybe it was brought there by man a long, long time ago, way before they thought man was around. Yeah. Because we have a much more condensed timeline of only, what, the flood being about 44, 4,500 years ago. Yeah. So- yeah, man, man's impact over a much shorter period of time, but a much greater impact because he, yeah. he, he was man at the onset. He was fully yeah. formed. 
And some of the articles I've read on biogeography, they do mention man being a transporter of sorts. It's almost, you know, a footnote. It, it's, it's not really expanded upon. You know, they say, yeah, that's a possibility. But I think we are drawn to more naturalistic uh, reasons for, for it. And I'm actually thinking that man may have had much more to do with getting things around than we think. I like that. I'm not necessarily saying that the others aren't yeah. uh, important. What's interesting is the flora is very similar between Eastern North America and Eastern Asia. Yeah. And that's always, you know, sort of. Lots yeah. of the same deciduous tree. Yeah. Like even, Yeah. Maples and. Yeah. So it's interesting. Biogeography, I never had a course in it, but I would, would have liked to have learned about it. I wouldn't have liked to have learned about it so much from an evolutionary perspective, but it's, I think, something that needs to be really developed yeah. in the creation yeah. uh, model. So you, you young biologists out there, yeah. this, is your, this, is, this is what you're going to do. Yeah. I have one more question, if sure. I can. Uh, you know, it's interesting to think about things that help, help these creatures to get to different parts of, of the world, but also things have occurred since the flood that have kind of restricted ranges or separated different groups of populations. Uh, and, and one of the more interesting groups in my mind are the, well, in our area, we have, uh, we have some species that are found inland hundreds of miles that are identical to species that are found hundreds of miles to the west on the coast. So these disjunct populations, western red cedar forests and western uh, hemlock forests are kind of considered uh, a coastal disjunct a population here in in kind of southern uh, Alberta and, and North Idaho. And so uh, the, the, the ice age, it also, the theory here is that kind of this refugium theory right. that the ice, the ice built up and uh, the glaciation occurred and it moved, it moved south and covered a, a, a most of Canada and a lot of the northern tier of the U.S. But there were some deep, uh, the theory goes, there are some deep valleys uh, that worked or acted as refugia. They were, they the were, valleys or the, uh, the mountain top? The, the river valleys um, were considered refugia for some of these species uh, that would have been wiped off of, of, off of the map interior otherwise. And so, for example, the Coeur salamander, uh, western red cedar uh, trees, it's the theory goes, and this, I, don't I don't believe this theory is part and parcel to an evolutionary process. It would it would differ evolutionarily because they believe the last ice age occurred a lot longer ago than we do. Right. Um, but the idea is that all of that, all of that space in between kind of the northern Rocky Mountains and the, the west coast of Oregon and Washington was completely glaciated and, and, and the species there were, were either transported or, or, or wiped out temporarily. Um, but there remained a population here uh, farther to the east where there are these long running river valleys that kind of run from, uh, from east to west. So the Clearwater Refugium, it's, it's uh, called. Have you heard of that well, before? No, but um, how would they have been in the valleys? How would they have been protected? Normally, it's lower, think... at lower elevation and so kind of shielded in these canyons from the ice where it stayed a little bit warmer. Canyons, oh, I see, like yeah. warmer. Because I've heard Refugium up high where the- Yeah, so glacier, kind of the opposite process. Opposite. Since the, where it's low down and things melted so um, they didn't get scoured. Right. That's the thought. Just kind of the microclimate of these deep canyons kept things warmer 
Um, and so the glacial sheets wrapped around yeah and scoured around them but that's the idea them? i see yeah and so that's and yeah i don't have kind of a one of the theories for why we see this this disjointed population of tree species in particular uh, -huh. uh yeah. in our part of the world but also on the west coast yeah yeah interesting and so there are probably a lot of those a lot of yeah. Dis you, disjointed or disjunct so populations the, of creatures. <clears throat> throw the ice age in, one ice age from a creationist model, but that's another variable that right. we have to think about. So just to recap as, as things could have moved across from the arc by migration, there may have been land bridges that connected continents after the flood due to a lower sea level. And the lower sea level due to the ice age, big ice sheets building up, lowering the oceans, basins, or not basins, um, the sea level, and having things migrate across or uh, rafts of vegetation moving things from uh, one continent to the other by the different ocean currents and um, human transport. Yeah. And, as well as that last thing of diversification once a few members of a created kind with a lot of genetic capacity radiated out and diversified from that founding colony and then made for lots of species. Uh, so, so a story still unfolding. Yeah, the story's unfolding. And remember, keep it in an open hand. Don't get dogmatic, but it's good stuff to think about. Yeah, have some fun. Look up, look up a place that has a lot of endemic species. And there's a lot of interesting areas just in the continental U.S., that are kind of these hot spots for creatures that aren't found mm -hmm. uh, anywhere else. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. We'll see. See you next time, we Gordon. We'll see you next time. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Thank you for listening. And remember, for all your homeschool science needs, go to noeoscience.com. That's N-O-E-O science.com.